Welcome to Bodcast, the business of dentistry podcast, brought to you by Practice Plan. Bodcast delivers the best business advice, real life stories, and practical hints and tips to make your practice a more profitable and sustainable business. And now, here's your host. Hello, I'm Neil Whelan, and welcome to the Wesleyan Podcast. In this edition, we're talking about changes to the self employed status of associate dentists. Laura White is back in interview as chair. And joining her this week is one of the Wesleyan Financial Services Specialist Financial Advisors for Dentists, Nick Wilton. They'll be talking about the financial risks being missed by practice owners, particularly the question of whether associates are employed or self-employed, and the importance of contracts and practice agreements. As always, this podcast is for information only and isn't financial or legal advice. But if you do need more information, Wesleyan Financial Services and its Specialist Financial Advisors are always available to help answer any questions you may have on the points raised here, and indeed on anything else that might be troubling you. I'll be back later to let you know how to get in touch with them. But for now, I'll hand you over to Nick. First up, Laura. So um, if we can just start off then, what are the biggest financial risks that are being missed by practice owners currently? Well, Laura, that's a very good question. And obviously there's multiplicity of risks that face every business. Dentistry is no different. But I do think there is a significant risk that many partners associates appear to be unaware of flowing from the current thinking around associate status. Specifically, are associates employed or self-employed? Many practices, whilst they may have compliant contracts based on British Dental Association standard terms, are not executing the contract fully. And what happens when you deviate from the written word, you effectively invalidate clauses within that contract. And one area that often causes an issue is the provision of cover for the associate in the event of the associate's absence. So simply put, the standard BDA contract makes the associate responsible for arranging a locum or other cover in the event that the associate is unable to fulfill his or her commitments to do the work. But in practice, what we're finding is that often the work is covered by colleagues within the practice or the partner assumes responsibility for arranging locum cover. And if that happens, then the BDA contract is rendered null and void, at least in that regard. And English law is based on the principle of precedence. And what that means, simply put, is that if you write something down, but then you demonstrably deviate from the written word, then your actions have set a precedent which effectively undermines the contract. We don't know precisely how HMRC will interpret all of this, but what they have made clear to us is that the contract will be judged based on whether or not the contract is fully implemented. So in a scenario in which the written word says that the associate's responsible for providing a locum, but in actual fact, the partner arranges a locum or manages it within the practice, then we see a real risk. And we, we, we see the risk that HMRC may, they may not, but they may choose to challenge the self-employed status of the associate. And where they do so, this could introduce a risk in terms of tax liability, the advice we've received is that the partners will be responsible for unpaid taxes. So clearly, an employee would be taxed very differently to a self-employed person. So we really think 
the key message here is that not only do partners ensure that they're operating a compliant BDA standard terms contract, but they need to be very careful when they when they vary the terms of that contract and take legal advice and also ensure that what they actually do rigor- rigorously adheres to what they've written in the contract. Is that helpful? And that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask about a term that's quite commonly thrown around, but perhaps newly qualified dentists won't be as familiar with, and that's what is IR35? This That's a very interesting question, Laura. And being a bit of a train spotter, I had to go away and Google it and see where, what IR35 actually stands for. And all IR35 means, it stands for Inland Revenue Press Release 35. But it's become shorthand for, for what is euphemistically described as HMRC's approach to off-payroll working. So essentially, IR35 is all about employment status and whether a worker is to be regarded as an employee or self-employed. This isn't specific to dentists. This is across the piece. And there are an awful lot of consultants who've had to think about this, who've been performing work for the MOD, for example, Ministry of Defence, as limited companies where HMRC stepped in and said that they must be treated as employees with all that that means in terms of their tax status. So IR35 has been around for some considerable time. What's happened more recently, however, is that we've seen HMRC revisiting this subject and tightening up the rules. They, they would argue they're clarifying. We saw the introduction of something called CEST, and CEST stands for Checking Employment Status for Tax. It's basically it's the same fundamental problem as IR35, namely, is an associate employed or self-employed? But the tests are rather more detailed and rather more rigorous. So we do, whilst we don't know, because this is all very new, we don't know how HMRC will actually execute and implement the CEST rules. It is something that partners and associates alike really need to be aware of and to think about. Now, a key criterion that that applies to IR35 and CEST alike is who does the work and how is the work managed? So where one can evidence that the associate is responsible for the work and when the associate is uh, unable to perform the work him or herself, the associate provides a locum, then that's very good evidence for self-employment. And of course, we offer locum cover. So if the partner and the associate wish to preserve the associate's self-employed status, then putting in place locum cover would really help in evidencing that. Okay, so what should practice uh, practice owners be looking out for in terms of their associate agreements and associates themselves? Well, Laura, that's another really good question. I I think do's and don'ts. I think one of the first things I would say is don't mess with the BDA standard terms. If you're going to vary the terms of the BDA contract, then take legal advice and make sure that you fully understand the ramifications of any changes that you propose to make. The BDA contract is compliant. So if you don't change it and you execute the contract, as it is written, then 
that's a big plus with specific reference to who does the work if the contract as it does say in the standard bda terms that the associate is responsible for providing cover in the event the associate is unavailable to do the work themselves then it is important that that's what happens in practice now putting in place locum cover by the associate would be a very proactive mood to give a concrete manifestation of self-employment so it's one thing that can be done to demonstrate that the associate is self-employed if indeed that is the objective should add at this juncture that there's nothing wrong with entering into an employer employee relationship provided both parties are happy with that and both parties fully understand the tax ramifications of that decision where problems do arise however is where in the partner's mind the associate is self-employed hmrc come knocking and decide to conduct an inquiry decide that it's an employer employee relationship and then flowing from that there is a tax liability and there's also a question about employee benefits because of course as an employee um, there's an entitlement to holiday pay and various other benefits which aren't enjoyed if the associate is deemed to be self-employed so i think it's important for all parties to have clarity as to where they stand yeah so is there anything else that you think that should be considered in terms of this particular topic well laura as part of preparing for this little interview I learned something myself, and that is, I was fascinated to find that questions of tax and questions of employment law are handled by different tribunals, and they don't coordinate their findings. So in the event of a dispute, you could hypothetically have a situation in which the tax tribunal deems an associate to be an employee, but an employment tribunal deems the associate to be self-employed. So it's clearly a very complex area. And I think that the key message is to proceed with caution, stick to the BDA standard terms contract, and employ some very good legal advice to make sure that what you're doing remains compliant. And, and also to stay in touch with specialists who are have their finger on the pulse with what's going on. Because what to reiterate the point I made earlier, the devil is in the detail. We don't know how HMRC will choose to implement this, bearing in mind that CEST is not specific to dentistry. So in an environment in which there's a shortage of dentists, will HMRC be rigorous in their implementation of the, the rules or will it be light touch? We just don't know. Thank you, Nick. That's really interesting and really helpful. Um, just one final question. If, there, if um, anyone was considering... Uh, locum cover or anything like that? Is it this something that an, an advisor can help with? Well, of course we can, Laura. I mean, Wesleyan is synonymous with dentistry. You know, it's, it's one of our specialisms. Um, Wesleyan does offer a solution here, as as you might expect, because we pride ourselves on serving the dental segment. So it's really part of our job description to make sure that we follow what's happening within the sector and provide appropriately tailored, bespoke, 
financial services to suit our clients' needs. It's what you'd expect of us. It's what they'd expect of us. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, We'll have to have you again on the podcast in future. And that's our show for this week. Thanks to Laura and Nick. If after listening to that, you think you could do with some expert financial advice, go to wesleyan.co.uk, where you can book a no-obligation appointment with one of our specialist financial advisors. To find out what Wesleyan is up to more generally, you can follow us on Twitter at Wesleyan, as well as by searching for us across Facebook, Instagram, and of course, LinkedIn. And if you found what you've heard useful, you can like and subscribe to us on all the usual podcast platforms.